You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us for this episode of our RSA Conference podcast series, where we will be talking about researcher relations, policy trends, and building trusted relations between security researchers and organizations. Today, we are recognizing that while researcher relations and the vulnerability landscape has evolved, we still have a long way to go in strengthening the bond between researchers and organizations. The evolving regulatory landscape has and will continue to have tremendous impact on building trust between researchers and vendors, which is critical if we all hope to achieve the goal of a more secure IoT world. We'll be talking with esteemed guests about researcher collaboration, IoT security, and anti-hacking laws. But before we dive in, I'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves. Amit, Ted, Thank you so much, and I'm excited to be here today. Um, my name is Anita Lazari. I have a doctoral degree in the law, uh, and my background is legal, but I'm not your lawyer, uh, and what you're going to be hearing today is not legal advice, of course, and it's my own personal opinion. I'm a lecturer at UC Berkeley School of Information. I teach in the Master in Cybersecurity program. I've worked a lot with the community. In fact, I have a number of bug bounties of my own that I received from work on uh, with Google and with Facebook. And I work at Intel, where I do government relations and security policy work uh, throughout uh, our entire organization. And I'm excited to be here today. And my name is Ted Harrington. I am one of the owners of a security consulting company called Independent Security Evaluators. And essentially, when companies need to find security vulnerabilities, fix them, and then ultimately prove their solution is secure, that's sort of our wheelhouse, our area of expertise. Um, I'm also the author of a book that is coming out in a few months called Hackable, that is all about how to solve the many, many, many security challenges that come with trying to build secure applications. Welcome, Ted and Amit, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Amit, I'd love to start with you and hear more about the evolving regulatory landscape as it relates to what is changing for IoT security. Thank you so much. And, you know, this is a, an interesting question that I talk a lot about. And what we've been seeing is certainly an influx of proposed regulations in the area of IoT security. And some of these proposed regulations also specifically, and this is particularly uh, of interest in the context of our uh, podcast today, touch upon this notion of having a vulnerability disclosure program or having practices around corner vulnerability disclosure. Specifically, what we have been seeing is proposed legislation, both on state and federal level, on minimum requirements for security priority devices. Uh, we do have already a law in California and Oregon, in effect, from January 2020 uh, on the issue of uh, reasonable security for connected devices. We have also seen uh, proposed legislation, uh, for example, in the UK, where they list specific requirements around the issue of updates and communications around uh, um, period of updates, having a point of contact to report vulnerabilities, 
and also the issue of default passwords. Uh, in addition to proposed legislation, there has been a very active effort among the entire industry to define in both international standards and consensus-driven reports what are the baseline uh, minimum security requirements for the IoT device landscape uh, for the device itself. The prominent effort there is, for example, NISTER A259 uh, that has been developed by NIST, and there is additional effort by industry led by multiple trade associations called the C2 effort, as well as an international uh, standard in this area. So we are seeing a number of initiatives, both on the proposed regulatory sphere, uh, federal, state, but also some expert working and standards working, uh, industry coming together, defining what are the proposed kind of uh, risk analysis activities, the device requirements, uh, and that kind of work where we all come together as industry and provide expertise is really key to avoid fragmentation or a non-design neutral approach. Excellent. And I, I think it's so interesting that, you know, you talk about these evolving regulations and people coming together over the last decade. And Ted, we've mentioned that researcher relations have definitely come a long way in the last decade. Can you describe how for our listeners? Absolutely. Security research is something that we've been involved with since, I mean, day one. Our <laughs> The entire origin of what we've been doing as, as a company comes out of security research. And it's really interesting to see the sort of story arc, if you will, of the way things used to be versus the way things are today. And if you rewind back, you know, 10 years or, or more, uh, maybe a little farther than 10 years, the relationship was based around lawsuits, essentially. And then they've changed. Now you have not certainly in all cases, but in many cases, you have a very positive collaboration between the research community and the companies who are the subjects of this research. And the vibe still in most cases is like companies aren't super excited <laughs> to receive vulnerabilities in, in most cases. Some are super excited, but most, most aren't. But the relationship is starting to be understood as what it is, which is one that's about helping, about building better solutions, about finding and fixing the issues before the bad guys do. And that's a remarkable change from where it used to be when security researchers, you know, maybe 20 years ago, if they found issues, they were getting sued. <laughs> and um, there's, of course, lawsuits that still happen today when people go outside of sort of agreed upon ethical boundaries. But security research is much more understood as the favorable contribution that it is today. That's fantastic. And, you know, this whole conversation, we really want to be focusing on how we move forward together, right? How we continue to build relationships. And so this question is for both of you. Amit, I'd like to start with you. What are some proposed security regulatory initiatives in the area of IoT security and coordinated vulnerability disclosure, or CVD, that are developing right now? It is very interesting. We are seeing, uh, again, the proposed regulation sphere, some, some concrete examples where these two key trends of, of focus on quantum vulnerability disclosure uh, and having that point of contact, what we call the vulnerability disclosure program, the external uh, element of it, 
uh, really interacting with embedded and with IoT. Uh, so I can give some concrete examples. I have shared the UK proposed legislation for consumer household IoT devices in which they have proposed, this, this is still in the kind of consultation, this is still proposed, uh, that uh, having this point of contact to report vulnerabilities uh, is one of the key elements, one of three they have identified they would like to see from manufacturers. In addition to that, we have seen references to this idea of having a capability to both receive and handle vulnerabilities as a potential process, as a consideration, outlined, not as a device requirement because this is more of a process. This is not something you do in the device itself. You do it in the organization. But as a process capability um, in NISTER 8259, uh, which, which is uh, kind of a key document that uh, has a lot of contribution from industry and experts. In addition to that, we are seeing very concretely, uh, I would say around the world, uh, growing interest and recognition of the concept of the ecosystem power. And by that, I mean policymakers recognize the value of harnessing and leveraging the ecosystem to address issues, especially in complex ecosystem like embedded. So, for example, CISA and the DHS, so this is kind of a key cybersecurity authority in the federal government, they have issued recently something called a BOD, um, a Binding Operating Directive, where they're actually calling all federal agencies, with some exceptions, to have vulnerability disclosure program for their own assets that placed. Uh, this is BOD 2001 that was released in draft. Uh, and in, in that relaying, they, they actually talk about the value of having a vulnerability disclosure program. So this is just one other example coming kind of from the CVD landscape. We have also seen regulators, but not just regulators, also other kind of government bodies like the Department of Justice recognizing the value of vulnerability disclosure programs and putting guidelines or recommendations out there specifically in the context of embedded. So, for example, NHTSA has documentation on this. I, I believe the FDA as well. Uh, but interestingly, the DOJ, it, already in 2017, they put out a framework explaining what are some of the considerations you need to kind of uh, take into account this is not binding. This is kind of a document which outlines consideration given the interaction between the vulnerability disclosure program landscape and the computer anti-hacking laws. And I think to your point before, Casey, this is a great example where you're seeing really the computer crime division. So, so this is really the division that understands the CSAA understanding kind of the, the need to have education in this area from the ecosystem, from the researcher perspective, and putting together a document out there. That one element of it, by the way, is this idea that you can create a safe harbor authorization in your bug bounty to facilitate our research and maybe alleviate some of the concerns that uh, Ted has raised before and has been a key topic of my own prior work. Yeah, and I can add on to that some insights from the security research perspective on how these things are changing. And I'm certainly not the policy or regulation expert that Amit is, so I won't try to even swim in that lane. But what I can do is I can share three stories. Uh, they're short stories about essentially the three different types of ways that companies interact with researchers. 
And what's important to notice as we talk about these things is that it's not about what the format of the interaction is. It's not about whether a formalized bug bounty program or vulnerability disclosure program or whatever exists. It's just about uh, the mechanism of how these organizations can relate. So story number one, this is the worst scenario in a lot of ways. And this is where a perfect example would be, you know, we, we did some research a few years ago. We submitted the research to the afflicted company, and they never responded. That's the end of the story. It's a really short story because <laughs> there's almost no level to it where uh, this is a very, very common thing, and it's really bad, where companies will either intentionally ignore the research submissions that they get, or they're not intentionally ignoring it. They have no way to actually ingest information. So the information just goes into a black hole. So that's really bad when there is actually no interaction with uh, the researchers. As the researchers find these issues, there's not even acknowledgement. This happens all the time. Scenario number two, and I, I'm grappling actually with whether this is the, the bad or the worst of the two, and we'll get to the good in a moment. But scenario number two, this is a real story. We submitted some research that we did looking into a number of IoT devices. We submitted it to all the afflicted manufacturers, and several of them responded, but one of them was non-responsive. Well, we couldn't get them to respond in any way, so we waited through the duration of responsible disclosure, published the research, and when they saw their name in the press, they weren't excited about that, and so they reached out to us, and they said, we want to change things. And we're like, great, they want to change the product. This sounds great. Well, no, it turns out what they wanted to do was just change the narrative. And so they threw a bunch of minimizing techniques at us. They said, no, we, we promise it's secure. We, they sent someone to our offices to, uh, in fact, somehow try to convince us in person that things were different. They even sent us a memo that said, we self-certify, there's no vulnerabilities. But what they didn't do was actually try to fix any of the problems. That's pretty bad, too, and this is not an uncommon scenario where a company gets the vulnerabilities and they try to actually debate or argue that the vulnerability even matters. And that's not really productive for anybody because the researcher is there to help you. But the best-case scenario is a really vivid one. This happened recently, and this doesn't happen as often as the other two, but this is the model. This is sort of where we should go from here to answer your question, Casey, specifically, is they should look like this. And this is also a true story. We published some research. We wrote up all the findings. We submitted it to the company. They had a dedicated email address where vulnerabilities could be submitted to, and it went directly to the company. They didn't try to firewall off their communication with us, with any sort of um, organization in between. They just said, here's how you directly submit vulnerabilities to us. And they responded almost immediately. Within 12 hours, they had responded to the submission. We were on the phone with them the next day. They asked a bunch of clarifying questions. They understood the issues. A few weeks later, they came back to us with the remediation. They'd fixed the issue. And they asked us to verify that it actually worked. And it turns out it fixed the problem. And so now this manufacturer of this particular solution was able to have a better, more secure product and approve it. And it was just a really positive win for everybody. And that really, uh, policies and regulations aside, they should all drive 
to that outcome. That's where we all want to be getting to is that the manufacturer wins and the, the researcher had a positive experience in so doing. And so, Chad, that begs a, a follow-up question for me, and it's kind of a chicken-and-the-egg type of thing. So do policy and regulation, is, is that what has driven the change that has evolved between re- researchers and organizations, or is it that researchers have been reporting these to so many companies that now they are influencing regulation? I'd be curious to hear what Amit has to say to that, but my observation and my experience has been more of the the latter of what you suggested. It's that companies are starting to normalize now to this idea that vulnerabilities exist, and that's not a terrible thing. What's terrible is ignoring them or trying to dismiss their relevance. But even though the world is changing and companies are much more receptive to this uh, type of stuff, not everybody's on board. And where policy and regulation really help is it starts prodding those who are dragging their feet and not moving yet. And I remember being asked this question about whether or not IoT is going to need regulation to solve these problems. I was asked this question probably five years ago. I mean, I'm asked it like every day, but five years ago in particular, I remember being asked it. And at the time, I remember saying, no, everyone's really moving in the right direction. IoT security is going to be what it needs to be. The industry is going to self-regulate. And that has proven to not really play out. And what's had to happen is uh, regulation has had to come along, and it's working, and it's starting to move people in the right direction. Um, But, Amit, what do you think? So my views are are, uh, a little bit different. Uh, um, First of all, to your earlier comment, and especially, you know, and I'm talking about my prior work here at Berkeley where I worked with many companies that are, you know, facilitating bug bounties and, and created explicit safe harbors in their contracts. Uh, to facilitate research, and have looked at empirical research with respect to the perception of legal risks. I think uh, we often hear about the corner cases, which is, is alluded to, you know, the exchange of legal threats or legal draft letters, um, whereas the majority of, of the market, as you see it right, right now, we do have a very vivid collaboration between the community and both the embedded in the web application ecosystem. Yes, you know, it's an area where crowdsourced research has really grown from web application, and you have uh, hundreds and thousands of resolved, uh, of resolved reports, I think even daily, if you take into account both the vulnerability disclosure program landscape uh, and the bug bounty landscape, which is an incentivized uh, system. It's a bit different. Uh, but it's also growing and embedded, uh, and we are leveraging a lot of that information. I think uh, our industry is recognizing that the support of the security research ecosystem is important and is, is incentivizing that. I mean, the Intel, for example, we do academic tailored programs using Intel Labs, and we also run a bug bounty. We also contribute to the open source tooling community and the like. Um, so in the legal relayment specifically, we often hear about the corner cases, right? Uh, and uh, in my prior talks, I, I share and I talk a little bit about those corner cases. But we also need to recognize uh, the important work that has been done in kind of the majority of the cases, right? Uh, and this is work on standardizing language when it comes to vulnerability disclosure programs. This is important work that is being done with having two key international standards on the issue of handling and reporting vulnerabilities at ISO. And those standards are being leveraged by regulators uh, and policymakers that are looking into that. And the CISABOT that I mentioned before is one example. So I just want to kind of distinguish between kind of the culture and kind of the 
corner cases versus kind of the overarching, you know, other thing that we're seeing, which is really this growing of the entire industry around the researcher uh, relations issue. When it comes to motivation for proposed regulation, I think it's a complex issue. Certainly, the specific piece about the inclusion of requirements around having a vulnerability disclosure program in specific regulations, I think it came from the understanding that the IoT and embedded ecosystem is so complex that it would, uh, to some extent, uh, if you will, uh, like the term, require a village. It will require all of us working together. And that includes, of course, the importance of the external research ecosystem because both the technology is evolving and both the cyber security threat landscape is evolving. Uh, so some of that is motivated from that recognition. There is very important work that is being done uh, on the standards relame and self-attestation relame, and I mentioned that before, internationally to make sure that we have scalable processes and not a fragmented, non-design neutral approach, uh, including at ISO level, by the way, uh, to kind of promote, harmonize, and foster security of IoT devices, and these are, these are the initiatives that I mentioned before, the C2 effort, the NISTER, and the like, and I think those are very important efforts. Uh, the security ecosystem, of course, contributes to that as well, and I think one example is Rapid7, which is a very active company in this area. They also contribute, by the way, to the policy discussion, really. Interesting. So I know we've talked about um, or mentioned in conversation, at least, bug bounty programs and vulnerability disclosure programs. Ted, I wanted to ask you if you could share what you have seen as some best practices in these areas. Yeah, so for any listeners who might not be familiar with bug bounty programs or vulnerability disclosure programs, these are essentially ways to crowdsource, like Amit was saying, um, research. And to the reason that a company, why they might want to have a program like this, uh, there's many reasons, but in particular, it helps them in theory, get more eyes from people all over the world, you know, get around border restrictions and visa restrictions, et cetera, um, researching the solution, and then incentivize those researchers if a bug bounty program, you know, via paying them. Um, and the things that we've seen that make these programs run really well is maybe a way to think about this is uh, avoiding the things that shouldn't happen. So security researchers... They're motivated by a variety of things, so it depends on the researcher, but either they're, they want to make money or they want to be able to talk about the research that they're doing, um, and ultimately they want to do those things in ways that help the company get better. I've seen cases where certain programs might be implemented in ways that actually disincentivize researchers. So, for example, they might not pay them and not allow them to talk about it, in which case the researcher is left saying, well, why did I just invest all that time and effort? And I don't actually think that the companies or even the bug bounty programs themselves are meaning to do that. I don't think they're actually trying to combat the researchers, but I've seen it play out enough times that it, it's a challenge. So best practice would definitely be set them up in a way that actually incentivizes researchers, either um, financial compensation and or allowing them to be able to talk about the research, which itself is an incredibly valuable uh, currency for those of us in the security research community. I think those would probably be the, the biggest things that I know these organizations already want to do, but the execution of them is, is really where the rubber meets the road. Interesting. 
interesting. I mean, I, I want to follow up on that um, because we've also talked about the anti-hacking laws. And so I was hoping that you could just talk to the listeners a little bit about how the anti-hacking landscape that interacts with bug bounties and vulnerability disclosure programs may implicate research and how you have seen these types of issues evolve over the past decade. Thanks. And, and you know, uh, if you allow, I will add a few points about the best practices because I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, it does actually interact with the, what you just raised, which is, you know, one best practice could be the consideration of a safe harbor, and I will explain what I mean. Um, so this is a lot of my firework from UC Berkeley. Um, the anti-hacking law kind of landscape, and I'm mostly going to focus on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, so there are state anti-hacking laws, and there is at least one other key federal law, which is the DMCA, the copyright law, has, of course, interaction with activity of security testing. Uh, one of the key academic questions that were out there is the question of authorization, uh, whether authorization can be established by setting technical boundaries, like password barriers and the like, or whether authorization uh, is established also by written language, like contracts and policies and terms, and that may include also uh, a bug bounty uh, terms of use, for example, by way of example. Broadly speaking, there is one section, uh, 1030.82, that has been kind of in the focus of many academic debates. Uh, and again, th the real notion here is that if you are exceeding authorization and accessing the computer and obtaining information, or you're operating without authorization, you might face implications under both criminal and civil law. So criminal is, you know, uh, either the, the, federal, the federal government or the state or, or would come uh, with a criminal uh, case, and civil is between private parties. Uh, and actually, it is the civil part that is very dominant, uh, also in the area of security research, just speaking empirically, the number of cases. The way it interacts uh, with bug bounty is, you know, the practice of doing security testing uh, and the boundaries of authorization, as I just suggested, as established potentially by the bug bounty uh, terms of use or contract or the platform contract. One of the recent, uh, I would say, important discussions uh, we have seen out there is this idea that given the landscape could be murky, um, can we use contracts? Uh, as a way to clarify that. So I've done a lot of prior work before I joined Intel on creating one language uh, that is, of course, subject to, you know, lawyers' review and your, your own legal advice, but the idea is to have almost like a, a Creative Commons uh, equivalent or open source license, if you will, that also encompasses the idea of explicit authorization and saying explicitly in the contract, we will not pursue legal action if you follow the scope of the program. That is this idea of the safe harbor. And in fact, the DOJ uh, in their documents of 2017 that I mentioned before has also mentioned this consideration as well. And I think, you know, that is uh, one area where their leadership is, is uh, kind of uh, very instrumental in shedding that potential interaction between vulnerability disclosure programs uh, and the CFAA. You know, in fact, you know, uh, Intel uh, back bounty recently added uh, language, uh, some language with that respect, um, on the issue of not pursuing legal action. And that is a very common language that we are now seeing out there, and it shows kind of how the hacker system evolved. It's still a, an ecosystem that is very evolving. It's kind of a new area, and we are all still studying the landscape, if you will. 
So that's one uh, kind of best practice or consideration out there. But the other one that I wanted to touch upon is um, the issue of communication, especially in embedded. Um, the complexity of embedded systems is potentially different than what we have seen in web application and, and other areas where, where the bug bounty community uh, has really grown. And we do have international standards here that are really illuminating. Uh, and one of the key considerations on the issue of, uh, for example, disclosure under these uh, international standards is this idea that because of the complexity of an embedded system, uh, you might have a broader collaboration needed between the different parties. So, for example, this could be uh, in a component issue. This might entail the CSP community or the OEM community or the ODM community working together on the verification of the vulnerability and the development of, of the remediation, and most importantly, the testing of the remediation in different environments before the remediation is being released to end users. So because embedded systems include components from many manufacturers, the collaboration needed to handle the vulnerability, uh, one that is termed multi-party CVD, sometimes is complex. And that entails sometimes a longer process and a very robust collaboration and coordination. And under the international standards, at least, one of the approaches or one of the considerations that while you're working on that remediation and the mitigation is not fully available yet to end user, the information about the actual vulnerability is kept in confidence uh, so it would not be potentially compromised by, you know, potential, uh, you know, adversaries or, or cyber criminals or whatnot. And while this information is being kept in confidence, there is a lot of coordination uh, happening in the background, but there is also, of course, need to be in communication uh, with the research community, with the reporter of the vulnerability. And this is an area where, uh, you know, we are seeing a lot of best practices, a lot of work of industry coming together to develop uh, kind of practices to have that kind of communication because it could be more nuanced, right? Uh, we have a lot of parties here to the situation, uh, and, and sometimes the information that one party has is not the same that the information that the other party has. Uh, so active communication is, is really kind of a valuable concept. And on the issue of disclosure specifically, you know, one common language uh, that we have seen being used uh, in many places, just speaking, you know, empirically, is this idea that there is a request for coordination of the disclosure of potential security vulnerabilities or requests for advanced notice, especially in vulnerability disclosure programs uh, versus private bug bounties, which are often under NDA. That's, that's a different issue. Uh, and there is communication going because for embedded systems, the complexity might entail uh, not a strict timeline, and that is the approach solidified by the international standards on this issue. Excellent. So we know that trust is a big hurdle for many organizations, but it's also an issue for researchers who often fear backlash or worse for disclosing a vulnerability. Some researchers have experienced legal threats, as Ted, you mentioned, which would understandably make them not want to engage. So how do we move forward and build trust between researchers and organizations in order to continue to work toward that goal of promoting security. Ted, why don't we start with you? So I think the answer to this is one that unfortunately isn't expressly super cut and dried and cleared, like how do you actually establish trust? Just in the same way, if you think about 
any relationship you have in your own personal life, how do you establish trust? There's not a necessarily a clear-cut guideline, but there are, just like there are in your personal life, as there will be in the relationship between researchers and companies, there are some sort of themes and some guidelines that we can all think about. One of the big things would be for companies to be able to articulate their stance on security research. That means literally having a page on your website where someone might submit their vulnerabilities, whether that's through a program or directly to you, and just share your philosophy. Talk about what your relationship is with the security research community. Outline your expectations of how the researchers should or should not behave because that's helpful because now then researchers can have a sense for where this particular company might be coming from. It also helps make sure that that company can sort of set some expectations of the way that they hope the researchers would behave. Um, we've sort of glossed over so far on this conversation the idea of responsible disclosure, which is the idea that there is a process when you're submitting vulnerabilities that you have to let the manufacturer know first so they can fix it and don't do things like disclose a zero-day vulnerability on the stage of a conference that the manufacturer doesn't know about yet. And so those are the kinds of things, just establishing that communication, being transparent. That's the first step to building trust in any type of relationship, including this type of relationship. I absolutely agree. I think it's all about communication and dialogue, uh, setting up the expectation, being uh, kind of as open as you can. Um, it's also about actually promoting the research. Uh, so, you know, we, at Intel, we actually invest a lot of, of time and money and energy in engaging with the community specifically through these programs like the Bug Bounty, through our Intel Labs academic collaboration, because we have a lot of academic researchers in this area of embedded hardware and there is work being done there that we are supporting as well. Uh, and, and the idea is this is a continued dialogue that together we are kind of embarking upon and uh, they're always learning opportunities, uh, and together we are kind of uh, working on developing that trust and dialogue and just listening, uh, listening and kind of putting kind of the expectations out there. Um, so I, I echo that trust-building exercise uh, note. I think that is important. And beyond that, uh, I think going and promoting this uh, notion of the ecosystem collaboration, promoting the notion that we need to be working together to address the issues for the end users. Um, and some of the, that leadership might entail, for example, and this is an area in which we are operating uh, a lot in, is taking all these best practices and standards and putting them out there, uh, whether it's work that being done on, you know, sharing best practices in the area of um, multi-party CVD, which is uh, multi-party and vulnerability disclosure, uh, whether it's work being done uh, in the international standards lane, whether it's work being done in collaboration with the community uh, in podcasts like this or on the ground in conferences like Usenix Security, DEFCON, and whatnot, and whether it's work being done by uh, in conversations with policymakers as they're considering these issues. Ami and Ted, this has been such a fabulous conversation. I wish we had more time, and hopefully I'll be able to have you both back on to um, engage in conversation as we continue to move forward. Before we wrap up, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Um, just I value your attention today. Uh, there is a lot of information about there. I think I have uh, two concrete call to action. 
as someone coming a little bit more from the legal background, but have collaborated a lot, uh, including with uh, ethical hackers and researchers, both in Berkeley and beyond, and certainly in Intel, I think this dialogue uh, on these issues, uh, complex issues, if you will, is important. So I encourage our audience, whether they're technologists or, or security researchers or lawyers, to come together uh, and engage in kind of an interdisciplinary dialogue because we need those different perspectives to address the issues and, and to kind of think about them from different lenses. So I think that that is one element. The, the second element is, as I hope that, you know, as you are coming out in this conversation, you're inspired to look for more information. I've done last year, I've done a keynote uh, with, uh, or two years ago, with my sister, actually, which is a hacker. Uh, so that was a hacker lawyer collaboration uh, right there. Uh, uh, and this, this is just one uh, kind of data point. But there is a lot of information out there, both on these issues of vulnerability disclosure, both on IoT security and policies, uh, both the NISTA work and the city work, where the contribution of industry and experts and the research community is important. And there is also work being done by, you know, just collaborating. So maybe you can check out our back bounty uh, and just uh, kind of pitch in as we all work together to address the issues in the ecosystem. And uh, I think I would add just one way to think about this as we part ways, and it's this. Think about security research like lifting weights or exercise. Uh, at times, it might be painful, it might be uncomfortable, but it's good for you. And the more that you do it, the better you feel, the better you look. Uh, it's the repetition and getting into the gym over and over and over again. Those are the things that actually drive long-term success. And so don't be afraid of that pain that might come but rather embrace it. And so if we can continue to think about things that way, we'll continue to foster better and better relationships between the researchers and the companies that are the subject of their research. And that is how we will drive to a better, brighter future. And know that your, your work is appreciated. Know that. For sure. And I think, Ted, that's an excellent point, right? It's about changing the narrative and seeing the positive of the results and recognizing that we all need exercise, right? This has been such a great conversation. Again, listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Ted, Amit, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise with us today. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of the day.